Welcome to Maris and Miller's new flagship, Let's Talk Pensions podcast, featuring conversations with experts on pension planning and management. We discuss the state of pensions, why the environment is changing, and the crucial thinking around generational equality. We also discuss topics such as leadership, the will to manage, and taking a business-minded approach to pensions. Let's Talk Pensions podcast is a Maris and Miller open pension initiative. And now, on to our guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Talk Pensions podcast. Today's guest is Randy Bowslaw. Randy leads McCarthy Tetro's National Pensions, Benefits, and Executive Compensation Practice. Randy has been involved with many of the leading pension and benefit cases over the past 30 years. He is presently counsel to the administrator of the Canadian Nortel Pension Plans, a lead creditor in the worldwide bankruptcy proceedings. He has experience advising on plan governance, design, mergers, restructurings and conversions, surplus repatriation, and deficit management. Randy has led negotiations relating to pension and benefit issues and has also acted as a mediator and arbitrator in pension-related disputes. Randy's clients include public and private companies, appointed administrators of wound-up plans, financial institutions, joint boards of trustees, and Canadian and foreign governments. Randy is an independent expert trustee for one of Canada's largest ELHTs, recently established in October 2016 to oversee implementation and administration of the consolidation of life, health, and dental benefits for approximately 45,000 English Catholic teachers throughout Ontario. In 2014, Randy was inducted into the CPBI Hall of Fame at a ceremony in Boston, Massachusetts. Randy obtained a BA from the University of Waterloo in 1977 and his LLB from Osgoode Hall Law School in 1981. He was called to the Ontario Bar in 1983. Hi, Randy. Welcome so much to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So I just wanted to start off, if you could talk about your role at McCarthy Tetro and how you would describe your role in the pension industry as a whole. Sure. Um, My role at McCarthy Tetro is to lead our pensions, benefits and executive compensation practice group. Um, We have lawyers in all of our offices uh, that do this kind of work. So it's a group of about seven to eight people, depending on which day you ask us. And um, I also co-lead something we've called our pension funds group, which is uh, around 45 lawyers. And it deals mainly with the investment transactions that are done by uh, pension funds. Um, so in, and then in my sort of day-to-day actual practice, I'm engaged with uh, corporate transactions, mergers and amalgamations, uh, litigation, plan administration, uh, plan governance, um, and also lobbying. I'm a registered lobbyist in a couple of different Canadian jurisdictions. And mostly that's to lobby for changes to pension rules. And then um, in my role in the pension industry as a whole, I mean, I, I've, I've really just tried to contribute to uh, thought leadership and debate. 
particularly around legal developments, of course, but also in broader terms of plan design, plan funding, uh, participation by employers and employees in, in workplace pension plans. Um, I've been privileged to serve in leadership roles within our industry um, with the Canadian Bar Association, the Canadian Pension Benefits Institute, the C.D. Howe Pension Policy uh, Council, and then also internationally. For example, I was uh, chair of the International Pension Employee Benefit Lawyers Association. Um, but I've also served I think sort of tangentially our industry and other capacities like uh, I was the I was on the board of directors of the Canadian Cancer Society and I served as chair of the HR committee for six years and uh, that was really managing pensions benefits and executive compensation and uh, I'm currently uh, a trustee on what is right now Canada's largest employee life and health trust and I feel some of these other jobs really help me get a better perspective not only on giving legal advice, but also contributing back to the industry. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and as you just mentioned, it sounds like you have a very um, well-rounded um, approach and experience in the industry. Could you maybe speak to, you kind of did already, but could you maybe speak to how that helps you in your role um, working with businesses as an advisor? Well, I think what really helps is having been doing this for more than 35 years, and that's always a, sh a shock when I say it out loud. <laughs> um, but um, I think some of, doing some of these other things also just gives me a better perspective on, you know, as I said, on giving uh, legal advice, which I'm primarily retained to since I've, you know, I've been in the position of being the service provider and being the client of lawyers, actuaries, consultants, communication specialists, and others. So. Um, I think, you know, doing some of that other stuff really gives you perspective. It also, I think, um, participating in some of the industry groups uh, gets you sort of socialized with other people who are in the industry and gives you a, a, an opportunity to exchange views. So I think all of that's really been helpful to, to my clients, frankly. Yes. Why do you think you chose the pension route over anything else in the legal field? I think it would be fair to say that it chose me. Uh, when I was in law school, I kind of liked tax, labor, litigation, human rights. Um, and in fact, uh, the last thing I had in my mind when uh, I was looking for an articling position was working at some large Bay Street law firm factory. And um, uh, when I when then when I did finish my articles, I found I couldn't actually do all of these things. I had to sort of pick one area. So I decided to just leave the law and take a job with what I thought at the time was a management consulting firm called uh, Mercer. And I was there for three years before I got wooed away by a uh, a large Bay Street firm where I spent 24 years. And I think the reason I really like pensions is because it combines all these different areas of the law, tax, labor, human rights. I mean, I, I got to deal with some of the first cases dealing with this age discrimination, sex discrimination, um, homosexual marriage rights uh, with pension funds. I, I still remember that one. Pretty, it, was a, it was an odd incident back in the early 90s with a client who had a, 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 a gay couple that was in the plan and how did we deal with with him and, and uh, his partner and their, and their pension issues um, without being front page news. And, um, and then also 
you know, dealing with the biggest bankruptcy uh, situation that's, in, that's, that's uh, affected a pension plan being Nortel, um, carrying out simultaneous court proceedings in the U.S. and Canada, which has never been done before, uh, just dealing with the size of the loss and managing all of that. And um, I think also just dealing with governance issues relating to proper governance and fiduciary responsibility, including providing um, advice to the United Nations on, uh, you know, the original advice to the United Nations, which resulted in the development of the principles of responsible investment group. Wow. So that's something that we at Ameris and Miller talk about a lot too, is um, the holistic view, um, the approach to pensions, in that you look at every um, angle of it. You look at the employees and the business and how leadership plays into it. So we really appreciate that that's also um, your perspective and experience. I think it's really important. In fact, when, when we have young people who express an interest in doing pensions, um, what we try to do, and this is one of the great advantages being this firm, is um, we, we try to get them a, a secondment with one of our clients, whether that's you know um, somebody in the in a, in a industrial capacity, or uh, frequently um, you know we a couple of our clients are are, are actual consulting firms, and we've we've done uh, exchanges or secondment arrangements with them because I think they get a better overall picture, and I think that's really important mm-hmm. when trying to provide clients with uh, strategic advice or governance advice is having, you know, a, a bigger, a bigger uh, landscape that you can see. Right. Uh, how would you say your firm um, competes with others in the industry? Well, um, I'm gonna look at Trevor, uh, one of my colleagues who's sitting across from me here, who I think this firm really encourages innovation. And it's, I mean, innovation is, is a, the word of the month at this point, but I, I think this firm has taken steps to, to do things that really are innovative. Um, we've embraced some different arrangements for how we hire lawyers, for example. We've embraced some, uh, obviously, we, uh, you know, alternative fee arrangements. We've embraced a broad variety of those. Uh, we are even in, in a couple of situations embracing doing partnerships with other, other clients that are also service providers to provide better service to our clients. And, and I think um, this, this firm uh, has been really wide open to understanding that the nature of law and the provision of legal services is changing and they want to be ahead of the curve. And I, and I feel that they, we've got a, a senior leadership term team that really believes in that and is striving to make sure that we are at the leading edge of that. So I, and, and by the way, law firms are very conservative institutions that move extremely slowly. So this is a big deal for a firm like this to be, I think, on the leading edge of some of those issues. So um, uh, uh, I think that's how we're we're doing it differently from others in the industry. And uh, the other thing I like is I I, I really I don't have to work with people I don't like. <laughs> hmm. um, I mean that is a measure of how we assess people before we hire them. Can we work with them? Not just are they great? Do they have great reputations? But how are they to work with? And uh, the other thing, of course, is um, every year I've been at this firm, we've exceeded our profit goals by a significant margin. So that's always, that's always a nice thing to do. How, how would your, um, I guess, firm or maybe your colleagues, even yourself, how would you promote 
more leadership in the community um, and in the pension industry as a whole? I think, I, I don't know how you promote leadership. I think individuals need to sort of recognize that if they have an interest or they think something is wrong, is to step up and say something about it. Um, and, and for the rest of us, we need to make a place where that's available, that, that, that makes that easy for them, not necessarily easy for them to do, but gives them a place where they can do it. And um, people who have something uh, to contribute and people who aren't prepared to wait around for someone else to get the job done, we just need to make space uh, somehow for them. I, I don't think, um, in, in your question, you talked about promoting leadership. Uh, and I, I agree, we need to promote uh, leaders because leaders aren't really chosen. They're kind of self-appointed. And a lot of the success of somebody being a leader or not is just trial and error. And um, I'm not talking about opening up spaces for people to just complain without offering up a solution or to knock down an idea without offering up a solution. I think real leadership involves coming up with solutions as well as criticisms. And um, I, I, I think for me, it's never really been about leading. It's been about getting involved because that's going to help me to grow and expand. And so, and, and my motivation is usually, I want, to, I want to move the yardsticks forward. It's not about adding another line to my uh, personal resume. I just really want to leave the place a little bit better than how I found it. And I think we need to encourage that amongst people who are involved in industry associations. When, when and in fact, when I do chair these industry associations, I kind of want to make sure that committees that are set up have a good mix of younger people, as well as the sort of the older, wiser people, because I know the older people are going to contribute ideas. They're not actually going to roll up their sleeves and get the work done. The younger people are more likely to actually get it done, and they'll, they will be able to expand and grow through that experience. And um, so I think we need to encourage all sorts of people to participate and all sorts of people to step up and, uh, and be leaders. And then I think one more thing I would say about promoting leadership, um, it's really important that I think people understand that being a leader doesn't necessarily mean that you're at the tip of the triangle, the top tip of the triangle. I think one way of leading is to help the whole group function better. And one way of helping a group function better is by supporting the official leader or participating in these committees I was talking about. So leadership, I mean, to promote leadership, you need to make these places available for all sorts of people. I think young, especially young people, and you also need, uh, I know this is a flavor of the month thing too, but diversity. I think it's really important to have a diverse, a representation of diverse, not just diverse ideas, but people who come from diverse backgrounds because that will lead to better decision making. So besides leadership and diversity, what do you think needs to be changed in the industry today? What would you recommend? I'm lucky. I get to do a fair amount of international work. Um, and so I get to see other pension systems and I, I get to actually see what's working and what's not working. And as I, I think what I would like to see is an evolution away from single employer pension plans and more into the multi-employer pension plans. I think we need to get away from this idea that, I mean, if you take a look at back in 2011, I got to arbitrate a dispute between Air Canada and one of its unions. And I learned a whole lot about Air Canada. I learned that at the time, 
it had $15 billion in pension liability. And if you sold everything that Air Canada owned at the time, the company's worth about $5 billion. So this wasn't really an airline with a pension plan on the side. This was um, a pension plan that had an airline on the side, but all the expertise was on the airline side. And I think these multi-employer kinds of arrangements would allow some of that governance and um, expertise to be put into the hands of people who have some governance and expertise around pension and insurance arrangements and free up companies to do the things that they're best at. So I think moving into MEPS is a good idea. I think um, if you look at places like the Netherlands or Iceland, uh, where more than 95% of workplaces have pension coverage, their pension system is largely industry-wide pension plans. In Iceland, there's only 25 pension plans, but they cover 95% of the workforce. Um, they work. I think we also need to get away from DB and DC models and start moving into hybrids. And whether you call them uh, target benefits, shared risk, defined ambition, uh, collective defined contribution, uh, negotiated cost, composite plans, whatever label you want to put on them, I think we need more of these plans that marry up the best features of DC, which is fixed contributions and fixed financial exposure for employers with um, the best of DB, which is predictability of an income stream in, in retirement, uh, uh, expert management of, of money and cost efficiency. And I mean, big cost efficiency. If you can marry those two up together into one of these hybrid types of plans, that is a way forward for sustainable and predictable pensions. And I think that's where we ought to move to. I think our regulators ought to stop fumbling around with funding rules. I heard a well-respected lawyer, Canadian lawyer, at an international conference recently that said, you know, modifying the solvency funding rules will ensure the survival of DB plans. That, in my view, is pure and utter nonsense. The regulators can do all they want to reduce the solvency requirements, but unless they can change the accounting rules, all it's gonna do is give plans that are in trouble a longer runway before they either slip into bankruptcy or they slip into a, a DC model. We need, we need more of these hybrids, we need, and we need to move more towards industry-wide solutions, not single employer plans. So something we're really interested in is how to educate businesses um, on pension plans. And I know you recently authored, uh, co-authored an article um, on managing the environmental, social, and governance factor integration. And I'm just wondering how, how you think your role I guess, compares or works with actuaries in the field and how you can work together to help educate businesses on all of the changes going forward and talking about, you know, what you were just talking about, um, maybe changes that aren't beneficial to the future of pensions. Well, I've spent most of my career working with, in collaboration with actuaries. I have a, a profound uh, degree of respect for actuaries and they come at it, you know, basically come at exactly the same issues, them, the actuaries with a focus on the numbers and me with a focus on legal requirements. We can both read a statute, um, but there are other uh, aspects that a lawyer brings around uh, how statutes work, how you can challenge them. 
or how case law and the common law or the civil law, depending on what province you're in, overlays with those statutory obligations. But we both work best when we're working together. Um, and the article you were talking about was really around um, this ESG factor integration. And as I said, I back in 2005, we provided the initial opinions to the UN. We updated that in 2015, and we've been working with um, others on the, in this space. Um, and, and my frustration for many years has been that people don't properly understand ESG. Um, I, I think it would, and 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 why I was speaking, I was, I was this this paper was presented to the International Congress of Actuaries in Berlin. So about, if you can imagine, 3,500 actuaries all in the same place. Um, it's quite a quite a big group. I think they meet once every four years, and actuaries are are the closest to almost all pension funds. I mean, uh, they are inevitably going to be advising uh, pension funds on their statements of investment policies for their pension funds. And um, I'm always frustrated when I hear somebody talk about an ESG factor as being a non-financial factor. If it, and it's not. It's basically just giving you more information about any particular investment. Now, how you come at it, and what I'm saying to the actuaries, it's, it's sort of how you come at it. Uh, from a trust law, or a fiduciary law perspective, um, the purpose of a, where you got a purpose of a trust uh, in order to um, administer that trust appropriately as a fiduciary, you, you administer it towards what its goals are. And the Income Tax Act says the goal of the purpose of a pension plan has to be pro to provide financial benefits in the form of lifetime annuities. So your purpose is to provide financial benefits. So anything that is relevant to providing those financial benefits, not only can you take it into account, but in some circumstances, you must take it into account. And, and so when you're looking at um, these ESG factors, it's not about going out and saying, I want to change or arrest climate change, so I've got to go out and um, make investments that are going to stop it. No, that, that is in violation of your fiduciary responsibility. What we can do is if there's good information about the impact of climate change on any particular business that you're looking at, taking that into account is not only can you do it, but it may be legally required. So it's just a question of making sure that why you're doing, why you're doing it is to uh, achieve that financial purpose to either mitigate financial risk or better your financial performance. If you're taking it into account for some other reason, that's a problem. Another thing is I've heard people say we should go out and survey our members about what they think we should be invested in. Well, as a fiduciary, you can't delegate your responsibility to make decisions. So you go out and you do a survey and you got 60% saying we shouldn't invest in this company and 40% saying if we don't care, what do you do as a fiduciary? You can't just sort of take that into account. You've got to go and assess whether investing in that company or divesting of that company is going to contribute to your goal, which is to provide these financial benefits. And then the other thing I wanted to make clear in that presentation and in that paper that I did with Dr. Gartz was um, to show that there's a whole spectrum of things that you can do. Uh, you don't just necessarily want to divest of a company that's a bad actor, say, you know, involved with child labor or something like that. If you can nudge them and get them to approve um, that is probably going to be more cost efficient for you as a pension fund and probably, and you know, if I put on a different hat, it's probably better because you're probably going to get a better result than just 
pulling your money out because they'll go somewhere else with someone who doesn't care and they'll continue to violate labor law. So um, I think part of it was um, in, the, in that context was to take my legal understanding and expertise and try to help the actuary see it. And, and another, just one other little story about that. I saw uh, uh, about two or three years ago, we had an Ontario requirement where you had to, in your statement of investment policies and goals, disclose whether you take ESG factors into account and if so, how. And I saw a checklist from, I, I, it, was, it was a service provider in our industry and for their pro forma uh, uh, statement of investment policies document, you could tick a box that says, we never take it into account or there were two other boxes to tick off. And I said, if you tick off that box that says we never take it into account, you might as well just write, write in, and by the way, we don't have a clue about our fiduciary obligation. Because it's just evidence you don't. Because hmm. in some circumstances, you would need to. So to say you never do is turning a blind eye to something that may be relevant to your duty as a fiduciary. So that, I mean, that's sort of how we contribute our legal acumen. And then the, and the actuaries are basically gatekeepers and helping them that aspect of a SIP, um, I, I think can be helpful. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, oh, definitely, for sure. Thank you so much. Speaking of factors, when weighing options for pensions, what's your opinion on the aging population in our society and how that's affecting pension plans and will continue to do so? Well, um, aging is a fact. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I mean, I did read your paper. I thought it was very good. I've seen other statistics which suggest that, you know, you look at how much of the population that's being born today is going to live to be 110, I think it's like 20% or 30%, and it goes up almost every year. So aging is a problem. When we designed pension plans 130, 40 years ago, um, the idea was around age 65 is when people start to be unable to work. That has not been the case for at least half a century. So our retirement plans are now set up where people have this expectation at 65, I'm basically gonna take what is gonna be an extended vacation from age 65 till about 75 or 80. And then I'm gonna sort of roll over into what is really a retirement because at that point I'm not gonna be able to function either mentally or physically to the, to the degree I need to be able to work. So it's really a, a funding of a holiday. And one of the things we've got in our, our legislation and our rules, and this is all around the world, is you get to 65 and you have to get this continuous stream of income. And the other thing we know is that when, uh, is spending patterns. Uh, at 80 to 85, people's spending patterns drop dramatically. So why do we give them a continuous stream? Why not give them more upfront so they can actually enjoy, enjoy that holiday period between 65 and 80 or whatever the age is, and um, and then have it, have it reduce. Uh, there's, some, there's other things that aging is obviously going to do as well, and that is it's affecting actuarial valuations and you know how much of a liability we have. I can't remember if your paper uh, dealt with it, but there, I think there's, um, uh, there's also an issue around, we've got this baby boom that's coming through, like the, the pig and the python. Yes. And um, I, 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 maybe your paper did reference it. I read it pretty quickly, but briefly, I think yes. Yeah, because I mean, there is that bulge that's going to happen then, and then it's going to start to settle down again. But, you know, the other thing that that whole aging thing, and I think your paper deals with this, is it means more immigration because we're not replacing ourselves and we're not getting any smaller. So we've 
you know, it's going to have, a, you know, a broader impact, not just on pension expectations and pension entitlements, but also on quality of life and also just work and what workplaces are going to look like and how they need to accommodate people. So aging is really an important factor. And I think aging is, as your paper rightly points out, something that, um, that we, we really need to take into account as we design pension arrangements for the future. Thank you. I don't have any further questions, but I wanted to ask, is there anything that you want businesses to know um, from a legal perspective, you know, going into all these changes in our society and, and just how the pension landscape is changing, what advice would you give a business at this point in time? You know, you look at uh, companies like Sears and how their pensions have just failed. What what needs to be um, considered, I guess, going forward? What's the most important thing? We need to have more flexible pension arrangements, things that can bend, not break in the winds of demographic changes like an aging population or economic uh, changes like uh, sustained low interest rates. They need to bend, not break. Nortel broke. Um, a lot of the steel companies broke. Sears plan broke. Um, we, need a, we need plans that can bend. And I think the best and most flexible plans are, are multi-employer arrangements that are industry-wide and provide targeted benefits, not, not the traditional defined benefits, so that employers can bear the financial risk with some degree of certainty and employees can be pretty much guaranteed that their income in retirement is going to be 30 to 50% higher than it could possibly be in any kind of defined contribution arrangement. Thank you. You're welcome. So if there's nothing else that you wanted to add, um, I was just wondering where can um, businesses find you? What's the best way to contact you if they want to learn more about your services or get in touch with you? Well, they can call me directly, um, 416-601-7695. Okay. Or they can go to our website, www.mccarthy.ca. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Randy. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Let's Talk Pensions podcast, a Marison Miller Open Pension Initiative. To learn more about our firm and to listen to more episodes, please visit our website at www.marismiller.com.